Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Continuing on in our series of 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 14, the, kind of the middle section of chapter 14. So this week we are talking again about uh, the spiritual gift of uh, tongues and prophecy, uh, just so we can talk about things that are more controversial, you know, every week. Next week we're going to talk about giving, and then the week after that we're going to talk about men's and women's roles in church and the home, and then the end times, and we're just going to keep going like this, okay? The great thing about preaching through a book is that it, it forces you to, to, to pause and to reflect on the various things that you might otherwise just skim over because it's either too hard to understand or it's too controversial that we're like, you know, I'd, I'd rather not go there. And so this week is another one of those weeks where um, it can be challenging, but yet the Lord is continuing to speak to us, reveal himself to us through his word. And so right off the bat, I just want to just uh, reiterate what I said last week is that we as we talk about tongues and prophecy and spiritual gifts in general, we understand that there are differences theologically that we have with other churches. Now, the differences in in theology does not mean that we are somehow better or superior in our Christianity or in our maturity. We want to come along humbly to, the, the, in a sense, the Christian scene, the evangelical world, and say, look, we, we've got some things that God has done in us and through us in the way we understand God's word, but we don't come saying we're better than you or we know more than you or we've experienced more of God than you. We don't do that. We come with a humble servant attitude. As we talk about these things, as we approach these things, it's so important for us to remember the reason Paul's writing the book of 1 Corinthians is to bring unity to the body of Christ. And so what we don't want to do is do the very thing that he's, he's trying to wage war against is this, it's this sense of division in the church. And so we want to bring unity even as we talk about things that are controversial that we do believe differently about than other churches at times. All right? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us this morning to proclaim your name, Lord, that we can exalt the name of Jesus together here this morning. And God, as we dig into your word together, we pray, Jesus, that your name would be exalted above all things. God, that we would see your glory written across every page of scripture. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive from your Holy Spirit that which you are breathing and imparting into us. And God, that we would receive your word with faith. Lord, we pray that we would not be just just bystanders as we approach your word or just cavalier about what you're saying, God, but that we would diligently receive your word. God, because we know, Lord, that you are giving us your word to transform us, to change us, to reveal yourself to us. So God, help us to understand our, our place before you. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we open the book of 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, as uh, maybe Donald Trump would say. Um, 1 Corinthians, we, we open God's word, and we understand that Paul is passionate 
Paul is passionate about this one thing in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ. His death and his, his resurrection. That Jesus Christ has come here to save and redeem and pursue a people who are far from him, who gave his life to die for their sins on the cross, and that he rose again and that his presence is amongst his people today to save and redeem and to help and to build up his church. He is passionate about that one thing. Now, as we turn to the various chapters in 1 Corinthians, we see Paul working that one truth out in many different ways and in many different settings. So in the first chapter, we read about Paul saying, look, I didn't come to you with some kind of sophisticated words and some kind of you know, arguments that would, would please you or entertain you. He says, no, no, no. I came to you to proclaim this simple message of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's not this flashy, you know, fireworks in the sky kind of thing. It's a simple truth of Jesus Christ. And then he moves on in the various chapters of the book talking about divisions in the church and the way the church was, was disregarding one another and forgetting about one another. He says, look, because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters. What we do matters to one another. What we do, how we treat one another is a testimony and an evidence that Jesus Christ is alive. So the way in which we interact with each other, whether it be through lawsuits or sexual immorality in the church or the way that we disregard sin and embrace unrighteousness, that has an effect on each other. And so therefore, that effect is, is downplaying and making mi- minimalizing the gospel. We've got to get rid of it. He moves on to marriage, idolatry, food offered to idols, personal rights, communion, spiritual gifts. And he lays all of these before, before the church. He says, look, these must be surrendered to Jesus Christ for his purposes and his proclamation. That is what the Apostle Paul is passionate about in every single chapter of this book. He's bringing a church back to this fundamental understanding of who Jesus Christ is and who they are before him. That is what the apostle is doing. Now, continuing on with this declaration, he continues it. Now, he's bringing us to a place of, you know, how, how do we understand the way we interact before unbelievers? Then how do we interact with each other in the church? And now Paul in chapter 14 specifically, he's talking about how do we interact with one another in the sense of corporate gatherings? As we gather together, how do we interact with one another in the sense of what we call in America church? How do we do that? How do we understand that? Years back, this is probably 20 years ago, I, I had been inviting a friend of mine from high school to church. I was in high school at the time, and been inviting my friend from high school to church. And, you know, would you come? Would you come? And, and sometimes you invite people to church, they never show up, and it's disappointing because you want people to experience this relationship with God. You want people to experience this hope that we have in Jesus. And so, you, so I invite him to church, and finally, one morning, he shows up. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you've been reaching out to someone, caring for someone, wanting to bless someone's life, and they finally show up to church. And I was like, wow, Lord, this is amazing. This person showed up. Well, as this person showed up, um, 
another friend of mine who he was, my, my buddy was mutually friends with, got up on stage and he began to speak in tongues, okay? Now, <laughs> the person I was, the person I invited was sitting there and says, wow, Brad, you know, Brad's up on stage speaking in this other language. He said, I didn't know Brad spoke in Slovakian, right? Now, I don't know what Slovakian really sounds like. I mean, it just, I don't think he was speaking Slovakian. And he was just amazed that my buddy was speaking Slovakian. And I said, I turned to my friend who I invited, and I said, you know, I think he's speaking in tongues. And man, he freaked out, okay? I mean, honestly, he's like, okay, I'm out of here. And he left, and he never came back. And I'm still friends with this guy to this day, right? And I still invite him to church. He hasn't shown up yet. Now, here's the thing. As we talk about prophecy in tongues, right, there is a real sense in which some people from outside the church or even inside the church think, you guys are crazy. This is nuts. What do you mean you speak in tongues? What do you mean you prophesy? This is crazy talk. But yet as we approach God's word, we have to trust that it is God who builds his church in the way that he sees fit. Because I think in my own mind, I think in my own thinking, I don't know if I do things that way. I don't know if you've ever thought that you see things in the world or in the church and you think, you know what, I wouldn't have done things that way, God. I mean, if I was in charge, things would be a little different. I don't know what this tongue stuff interpretation of tongues. I don't, I'm not quite, but it's not up to me. I don't build the church. We don't build the church. God builds his church, and we are dependent upon his means and his resources to build his church, not our own. And so even as we talk about this, we have to remember it's God's job to build the church. He calls us to faithfulness to his ways, and dependency upon him to do that. Amen? All right. Let's read 1 Corinthians. We're going to start chapter 14. We'll start in verse 13. We'll read to verse 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, so Paul is beginning to address specifically the gift of, of tongues without interpretation. And he's saying in, in, in verse 13, he says, look, if you speak in a tongue, pray for the gift of interpretation. 
And like I said last week, this is encouraging for us because if we do not have a gift or if we need a gift in the church to build up the church, he says to pray for it. He doesn't say you're without luck or too bad or I guess you're going to miss out on that. When he says, no, 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 pray for it. Gifts are not static, they're dynamic. We can grow in gifts. We can, God can give us new gifts. God knows exactly what each church needs to grow and be built and we need to trust and believe that he will provide those very gifts for his church to be strengthened and encouraged and built up. That's God's ways. He provides exactly what we need when we need it. So therefore, if, if there's gifts not evident in our church, in our body, we can begin to pray and ask God to provide for what, that which we need. He's a good, good father. I love that song. Provides just what we need when we need it. But he also gets back to us, the Apostle Paul, in this section about the, one of the main goals of spiritual gifts. We see this in verse 12 and again in verse 17 and, and throughout the rest of the chapter, really, is this understanding of the gifts given to build up and strengthen the church, to build up, to bless, to care for, to help, to encourage. That's, why the, that's one of the main reasons the gifts are given. It's a consideration of the other people around us. That's not just about me exercising my ministry but about God using me to be a vessel to bless and strengthen the people around me. That's one of the main purposes of spiritual gifts, about the blessing and edification and strengthening of the body. And that's, his, that's been one of Paul's concerns about this entire book, is the care and concern for other people. So, so when we bring a gift, the focus needs to be upon other people, not ourselves. Now, I want to share with you a little story about a little town in Texas, because strange things always begin in Texas. Right, Mandy and Kaylee? This is what happens. Something strange happens, it probably happened in Texas first. So, a little town called Roulette, Texas. There was, a tor- there, was a, there was a big storm and a tornado that tore through this little town. And this family, knowing the storm was coming, hid or placed themselves in a bathtub to survive the storm. Now, what happened was, is they were able to survive the storm in the bathtub of their home, and their house was only minimally damaged. So if you could... So, this is the house. You can see there's some windows blown out. There's some shingles missing. Now, other families in this town and on their street, in, a, in, in their neighborhood, were not so fortunate. The other houses were, were, were destroyed and needed to, needed to be torn down completely so that they could build new houses. But these, this family survived by in the bathtub, and the, and the house only needed minimal cosmetic work, some new windows, maybe some interior work, and they're good to go. So what happens when a tornado comes through and, and, and wrecks some houses? They need to get a, a demo company out to this area in order to begin clearing away some of the, the houses that have been destroyed. So this demo company is called out. They go out to the, the place they should go. They plug in Google Maps, and they put the, lo- the, the house address of Google Maps into the, 
into the place, sent it back to home base, the company. They then sent out the proper crew with all the equipment to the location on Google Maps, okay? Well, Google Maps sent them to the wrong house. Sent them to the one house that was actually able to withstand the storm. So there's the next picture. That's the after, right? Wrong wrong home at the wrong time. So the house survived the tornado. It did not survive the demo company, okay? Here's the point. See, a wrecking ball is useful. It's, it's a helpful tool, especially if you need to rebuild something, right? Our cities would, would be nothing without wrecking balls to destroy the old buildings and build new buildings. Same thing for home. But it, the wrecking ball has a purpose. However, the right tools at the wrong place and at the wrong time, wreaks only damage. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the wrecking ball at the wrong house is not a good thing. He said, look, the way that we use our gifts at the appropriate time, in the appropriate place, in the appropriate way, has has an ability to build up the church. But that same wrecking ball at, at the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong Google Maps, destroys and tears down. It doesn't build up. And if we were to go around this church and ask the question, have you ever really been negatively affected by someone with their gifts either prying into your life or forcing them upon you or causing you to do something you didn't want to do, I bet almost every hand in this building would go up. You don't even have to believe in the spiritual gifts to have been affected negatively by someone who's trying to use their gifts for their own means or for some other kind of purpose. And that's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to address in the church. So these are good gifts. God has given them to build his church, given them to, to encourage one another and build one another up. Don't use it like a wrecking ball at the wrong house. Use them to build up. Use them to help. Use them to strengthen. You know, one of the reasons that we have someone who leads the meeting every week, it's not just to do the announcements and get all the kids out of the the upstairs as fast as possible, okay? That's not the reason we have someone who leads the meeting. We want to be a church who is open and, and ready to receive if God has put a tongue, an interpretation, a prophecy, a word of encouragement, a testimony, a scripture on your heart to share, you feel is to be shared with, with the rest of the church. And this person up here, Matt or Larry or Tim or Brian, is up here to help encourage that, but it's also a bit of a, can be also helpful to say, hey, look, Maybe focus on this one aspect. Or, you know what, that's, a, that's an incredible word, amen, but I don't think that's for the whole church. There, there's something up, there's somebody, someone up here to help encourage that in the church. So there's a bit of a safety gap for all of us. If we feel like God's given us something to bring, amen, bring it. And we will help. The leadership of the church wants to help foster that in us. So you can say, look, if I brought it up and someone said, hey, I don't think that's for right now, that's okay. It's not like, oh, shame on you forever trying to do that. No, we want to encourage that. We want to foster that. We want to see that in our church. All right, let's continue reading. 
1 Corinthians 14, let's look at verse 20 to 25. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That God is really in your midst. That God is present. He begins this section by contrasting children versus adults. Or I should say children versus mature adults. Because there's some adults who act like children sometimes. So children versus mature adults. And that's what Paul's getting at. Because as a mature adult there is an understanding and consideration of other people that children do not have. Children at, at their age have very little consideration of the, the actions that they do and how it affects the people around them. So they can eat their food or they can throw it on the ground or they can take their plate and throw it in the air because who cares? I don't have to clean it up or someone else will do it. I mean, there's no, there's no consideration. And the Apostle Paul wants us to realize, look, be mature in your thinking, in your understanding and use of gifts. Let there be a maturity that considers and understands how it affects the people around you. He says, in evil, be an infant. Like, look, give no consideration of this. But in your thinking with gifts, be mature. Consider others. Now, he goes on in verse 21, and he makes this what seemingly is a, an obscure reference to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's an interesting reference. He, he throws it all the way back to the Old Testament and brings up this, this reference to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. We don't have to, we're not going to turn there this moment. But what happens in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12, is, is that God in this, in this section, Isaiah, through the Lord, prophetically speaking to Israel, is telling about the coming judgment of the people of Israel because of their disobedience, because of their hard hearts, that there's a coming judgment from this nation called Assyria. And these guys are bad dudes. They don't worship the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They're pagan. They're idolatrous. And God is going to use this pagan, idolatrous people to bring a judgment upon God's people because God's people have hardened their hearts against the Lord. So that's the context of of Isaiah chapter 28, and he throws that into the mix in chapter 14. But that only makes sense if we continue to read in verses 22 through 23. And in verses 22 through 23, he says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And to be honest with you, for the most part, he says the unbelievers hear the tongue and think you guys are out of your minds, like my buddy. 
He heard the tongue. He thought we were crazy. He never showed up again. But see, tongues in this section and spiritual gifts in general, I believe, serve a dual function at times. Two sides to the same coin. One side is that there can be a hardening of the heart against the Lord. That our hearts are already hard, and as, a spir- as spiritual things come to us, our hearts remain in their hardness, and we think that this message of the gospel is crazy. That's what he says in the first chapter. It makes no sense to people because their hearts are hardened against the Lord. And therefore, when they, when they come into contact with spiritual things, it doesn't make any sense. And they remain in their unbelief in the hardness of heart. Because spiritual things, as he says in chapter 2, spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. But the other side of that coin is this, is what he continues to talk about in the rest of this section, is that there can be an opportunity as people are confronted with the gospel, confronted with spiritual things, that there is a repentance that takes place. That it's not always rejection. There's not always a continued hardening of the heart, but there's a softening of the heart in a response to God. So even as a prophetic word goes out, he says, look, that people are called to an account. They understand what's going on around them. They understand that God is speaking to them. They need a change. There's a conviction in verse 24 and a call to an account you ever, if you've ever had that feeling, and we all have at some point, I'm sure, you're driving along the road, and the police lights go on behind your car. What's that feeling like in your stomach, right? This summer, I was driving, I should say, last summer. It's not quite summer yet when there's snow on the ground. Um, I was driving, we're driving the car out of our neighborhood, like I've done a million times, and sure enough, the lights go on. Well, all the kids are on the car. And they're like, yeah, check it out. There's a police car with his lights on behind his daddy. You know, I'm like, hey, this is not a good thing, guys. Don't be happy. This is not a great, we're not going to celebrate this. This is bad for your dad. You know, and everyone's excited. They can't wait for the cop to get to the window because it's so cool. But here's the point. It, there, there's a recognition, right, when we get pulled over. It's, it's not, did I do something wrong? It's really, it's how long have you been following me and how many things have I done wrong, right? Because nobody, nobody follows every single, you know, we got the turn signal on 200 feet before we turn and complete stops and the speed limit and, you know, all that stuff, right? I hate to say it, but no one does that. Just follow a person long enough and they will break the law and they should be busted, right? Here's the thing. It's that same point that we are called to an account. When we get pulled over, there, there is a reckoning for the way in which we've been driving. We are called to an account. We, are, we must give an account for the things that we've done. He said in the same way with, this, with a prophetic word that goes forth from the church or a tongue and an interpretation that goes forth from the church that it has, it has an effect that is able then to bring conviction to a heart that says, I am being called to an account right now and I need to give a reckoning for who I am and this good news of Jesus Christ that's been proclaimed to me, it sounds like wonderful news because I have an opportunity to respond to the invitation of the gospel and my life is able to be forgiven and transformed and changed and brought into the family of God. This is good news for me. 
because finally there's, even in my reckoning, there's hope. Even in my conviction, there's an opportunity to respond to the good news, which makes it good news. That's what he's talking about in this section. And at the end of it all, in verse 25, in verse 25, he says, as the person's being convicted, as there is a, a disclosure of his heart, as there's a humbling, as falling on his face, he says he will worship and declare that God is really among you. That's the point of the whole thing. That's the point. That Jesus Christ has come and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. As we put our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. He takes our sin and rebellion away. He rose from the dead. He brings us into relationship. He brings us into his family. Gives us hope for eternity because of what he's done. And he has promised to be with his people. He will not leave us forsaken. And the hope of all that we do is not that we exercise spiritual gifts because they're cool, because they're helpful, because we like them. That's not the point. The point is that we come into contact with the living God. That there be a revelation that Jesus Christ is alive and he's amongst his people. And that's the one thing that separates us from all the rest of the world is the very presence of God. The question in this section is not, is God present or isn't he present? That's not the question. It's always been given that God is amongst his people. The question is, is it clear? Is it clear that God is amongst his people? Is it evident? By what we do and what we say and the way that we gather, the way that we love one another, that is it evident that God is amongst his people. And as someone leaves this church or leaves a gathering, we don't just give them some fun stuff and entertainment and hopefully they had a good time. What changes and transforms people is the presence of God. They leave somewhere not saying those tongues were cool. They leave saying, I was in the presence of God and I don't know what to do about it. That finally this gospel is good news. In all of this, we are dependent upon the Lord to build his church. This is not a do more, work harder, bring a gift kind of message. This is one that we fall before the Lord. We say, God, we are completely and utterly dependent upon you to do what only you can do. We can't build your church. We can't manifest a gift. We can't bring an interpretation to a tongue. God, that's your work. God, we'll be, we'll be faithful to cooperate with you. But God, we are dependent upon you. Lord Jesus, if you don't show up, we're nothing. But thank you that you've promised to be with us. You've promised by your blood to never leave us or forsake us. That is our promise in Jesus Christ. That's why this gospel is good news. It's not so that we get gifts, as great as that is. It's good news because his presence is with us. And that is what he's saying. That the person who's coming in, into contact with the spiritual gifts recognizes that the very presence of God is amongst those people. And that is our hope.
that is our hope. I want for us as a church, I want us to see the gifts manifest here in our, in our body. I just, we desire that, we long for that, but not so that we're known as a church with gifts or because people in here have an opportunity to minister as great as those things are. Our hope is that this place would be known as a people who have the presence of God, the living God in their midst. And that's not something we can fake. That's not something we can manufacture. That's the work of God alone. So therefore, we are utterly dependent upon the Lord, as we always are. Amen? We're going to close in prayer. I want to take a moment. We're going to pray. We're going to begin to distribute the communion elements. We're going to ask the Lord. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord that he would, maybe he's, he's given you gifts that you know of, that you can pray, Lord, increase my gift to bless, to serve, to build up. Maybe you say, I don't even know what my gifts are. We'd ask the Lord, God, give us your gifts so we can help the church. And we're going we're gonna to believe that God is going to continue to use, this, use you and I to bless and build up his people. So Lord Jesus, God, as we close here today, God, we confess our absolute and total dependence upon you. Jesus, all that we have, all that we are, Lord, what do we have that we've not received? And the answer is nothing. God, it is your grace alone that saves and redeems and gives us faith. Jesus, it is your grace alone that builds the church, that strengthens us. God, it is your very presence that transforms us. So God, we pray today, build your church. Provide that which we are lacking Strengthen us. Build us. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be committed, Lord, to you in a way that would cause us to walk forth the very gifts that you've given us for your glory, for the exaltation of your name. God, let us be that church. Lord, I pray that we would not leave here without realizing, Jesus, that we've been in the presence of the living God. We celebrate communion, Lord. We thank you for your, your life and your death and your resurrection. For the gift of your broken body broken for us. Your blood that was shed to, for, for our forgiveness. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Amen.